I discovered this week that there are books called Worst Case Scenario Survival Guides. Did you all know that were out there? I had no idea. Okay, so I thought, well, this is kind of all-encompassing, and if you're being chased by a gator in the water, I think that would constitute a worst-case scenario. But they also have several dispensations of this. So worst-case scenario, travel, worst-case scenario, work, uh, dating, college, golf. What is the worst-case scenario in golf? Like you miss a putt? I mean, what are you going to do? Um, oh, you throw your clubs in the water and you have to go get them, and then there's the, that's where the alligator is, maybe. Uh, weddings. Um, I'm going to get this uh, for Josiah and uh, Sarah Margaret, <laughs> just in case it goes south. Okay, uh, parenting, life, holidays. They even have one for man skills, so uh, if you know somebody that needs that. Um, they have pocket guides. Evidently, they don't have a whole book for these things, but pocket guides for worst-case scenario with dogs, cats. What is the worst-case scenario with a cat? Did you have one? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I know some of you are cat people. Sorry for you, but anyway. Uh, cars, breakups, meetings, retirement, worst case scenario pocket guide for New York City <laughs> and San Francisco. It makes me laugh. All right. Uh, there's even a, a, a card game, a board game, worst case scenario board game. So I got to thinking about it. Like It's a good intro, but we all sort of have... Worst case scenarios in, in our lives. There are things that happen. The, the title of the message today is, What do you do when you don't know what to do? And so I, I thought of, okay, what are some real life worst case scenarios? Maybe um, you go to the doctor and the diagnosis is severe. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a disease. And and that all of a sudden changes the trajectory of your life. Maybe out of the blue you lose your job. Maybe uh, you all of a sudden can't pay back your debts. I, I'm, I'm an old man and I learned a long time ago I can borrow more money than I can pay back. And there are people that find that out every day. Um, maybe the bank has begun a foreclosure on your home. Maybe... Someone you love and have lived with forever and ever has passed away, and now you just feel lost. Maybe a child runs away. Did you realize that 2,300 children a day run away from home in America? 2,300 a day. People live worst-case scenarios every day. Some of us in this room... We've either experienced them, are experiencing them, or will experience them because that is sort of life. And sometimes you just get blindsided. And so if you have your Bibles today, we're going to look at this odd little story found in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, the setting for this is just a little bit after the setting for last week. And if you weren't here last week, uh, let me bring you kind of, we're not going to go over the whole story, but let me tell you, uh, it was about a prophet named Elijah. And he had a showdown with 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he won 850 to 1. And this was this remarkable, this remarkable thing. And so the math doesn't work on that. 850 to 1, really, you shouldn't win, but he did. And so this story today takes place just a bit after that. Elijah was the prophet of Israel. 
He was the main prophet of Israel. Now, there were other prophets, but he was like, he was the Billy Graham of Israel. You know, he, everybody knew him. And so he has the mantle of being the most prominent prophet, and he has a protege, a prominent prophet protege, and his name is Elisha. Not confusing at all. You know, Elijah hands the mantle of prophecy off to Elisha. Okay, so Elisha, super interesting. Um, uh, Elijah literally takes his cloak off and gives it to Elisha and says, I give you the mantle, the cloak of authority of prophecy, and I pray upon you a double blessing. And in Scripture, Elisha does twice as many miracles as Elijah does. Super interesting stuff. Okay. So that's sort of the setting of this story. There's Elisha, and he meets a woman. Really, there are only... Last week, we had like four characters in the story. Today, we have about two that really matter. Elisha and a widow. We don't know her name, but it says, A widow of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. There's a lot packed into this. So let's kind of unpack it just a little bit. All right. So this, this whole company of the prophets, there's a little bit of a debate about what this is or who this was or, you know, whatever. But if you'll recall from last week, we had Ahab, this horrible king, and Jezebel, his wife, also equally horrible. And Jezebel was killing all the prophets of God, if you remember. And so there was a guy in their administration. His name was Obadiah. Remember that? And Obadiah was keeping a hundred of the prophets of God safe. He had two caves, 50 in each cave. And not only was he housing them, but he was also feeding them. And the idea, most scholars believe, the company of the prophets means it was this hundred prophets that Obadiah was caring for. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us who this woman's husband was, but there are uh, extra biblical um, works out there. One is by a guy named Flavius Josephus. Anybody know that name? Oh, good for you, Diane. Okay, uh, so Flavius Josephus was a historian back, way, way, way back, and he wrote twenty volume, a 20-volume work called The History of the Jews. I know most of you probably read this at night. Uh, you know, television, no. I'm going to go uh, listen to, read some pro, uh, uh, Flavius Josephus. Okay, so Josephus, he writes that the company, this woman's husband was Obadiah, the guy who kept the company of the prophets, which is super interesting. There's another ancient document called uh, the Chaldee Paraphrase. Uh, Rob, you probably read that all the time. Uh, the Chaldee paraphrase is the Aramaic version of the Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> Who doesn't have one of those? And uh, same thing, that the, the authors of that, they imply or assert that this man's wife was Obadiah. So, this guy was, was a servant of God to the point where he was willing to risk his life. Remember, he's an administrator uh, in an administration that hates the prophets of God and, and kills them. And he, he uh, sort of steals a hundred of them away, and he hides them, and he protects them, and he feeds them. And this was at great risk to his own life. So this was a good guy. Now, according to Jewish law... If you can't pay your debts, then the creditor has the right, 
to, ins- to make you an indentured servant, men, make men indentured servants for six years. And the seventh year you had to let them go. That was Jewish law. But this woman was facing the prospect of having her two sons become indentured servants for six years. Now, I want you to think about how destitute this woman is. You have to understand the culture just a little bit. A widow in that culture had very little opportunity to make a living. Uh, You just didn't have much of an opportunity. It was a man's world and men dominated and so you relied on your husband to provide for you. Now she doesn't have a husband and she's about not to have sons who could also provide for her. So her, her, her motherly instinct must kick in. Uh, those of you who are mothers in this room, I, I have a mom and I have a wife, and I know that women who are mothers, for the most part, will do anything for their kids. So here's this woman. She's lost her husband. She's deeply in debt, and there's just no way for her to make that money back. And she's about to lose her two sons. The idea around this is Obadiah probably borrowed that money from Ahab and Jezebel. And of course, he didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm going you know, to house the people you're trying to kill. Uh, but uh, you know, kind of covertly, perhaps he sought funds from the government. Well, now Ahab is gone and Jezebel is gone and Obadiah is gone. And... Um, There's a new king, his name is Joram, and he is likely calling in the debt. Hey, your husband borrowed this money, now we need the money back. And perhaps they found out about Obadiah's clandestine efforts, and they become exposed. And so now you have this situation where this woman, I don't know if you can feel it, but I want you to feel it as much as you can, is wildly desperate. I mean, I've been desperate before, you know, but she is on the brink of, well, look, if she can't pay her debt back and her boys are taken away, she will starve to death. She's in fear for her boys and she's in fear for her own life. This is where she finds herself. So she comes to Elisha probably as a last resort. Now, what do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do? I think it's a brilliant question. The, the first thing is we ask for help. That's what she did. She cried out to Elisha. Dude, I am, I am in the most dire of straits. Uh, the word literally means to appeal for help. Now, what's really interesting about this is, if Obadiah was really the one who is this woman's uh, husband, let's just let's go with that. They had done everything right. I mean, they were servants of God. He protected God's people. He had uh, clothed them. He had fed them. He had housed them uh, with great risk to his own life. He had literally done everything right. And you can do everything right and still things go wrong. It's just how life works. Sometimes we reap the consequences of our own sin. I understand that. Uh, You gossip and you lose all your friends. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. You're lazy and you get fired. Makes sense. You cheat on your taxes and you pay a fine or you go to jail. 
I, you did this, so you have a consequence. You eat poorly, you smoke, you drink to excess, you shun exercise, and you lose your health. These things make sense. Sometimes we reap what we sow. Oftentimes that's the case. But sometimes there are, are consequences to things we didn't even do. You have a spouse who cheated, and now you find yourself divorced, and you and your kids are facing the consequence of something somebody else did. The CEO of your company, he embezzled, and he caused the company to collapse, and you lose your job. You didn't do anything, but you lose your job. You're driving home one night, and a guy has been driving. He's been uh, at the bar, and he's drunk, and he head on, has a head-on collision with you, and you have severe injuries. It's not your fault, but it is your consequence. Sometimes life just deals us a really bad hand. Something really difficult comes into our lives. Sometimes it's our own fault. Sometimes it's not. But you still have to deal with the consequence. So the first thing you do is, well, we pray. A few weeks ago, there was a football game. It was the Bengals and the Bills. And there was a football player, Damar Hamlin, and he makes a tackle and he stands up and he collapses. I think it was Monday Night Football. Everybody's watching it. I mean, I, I, I was watching, I think the, most of the country's watching this thing. And, and it was different. Sometimes a football player will, you know, injure an ankle or a knee, or, and, and you can kind of see them writhing in pain. And, and it really is always horrible. Or uh, even, I've even had uh, the, the, uh, the displeasure of, of watching football players break bones, and those are always horrible. But this was different, and everybody, like everybody knew it. He stood up. And then he collapsed. And it wasn't a concussion. He wasn't knocked out. And you could tell by the reaction on the sidelines, uh, both training staffs run to him because this was different. And nearly immediately, uh, the teams, well, they did what intuitively comes natural. They began to pray. It's intuitive to us. When, when there's something we don't understand, when there's something that we can't do, we look to someone who can do it. I've got a friend here at church named Chris, and anytime I'm about to wire something at my house, I, I ask my friend Chris, hey, how does this work? Um, anytime I, I need to know something about growing something, I got a friend here at church, and, and I ask him, I say, Roger, what, how do you do this? If I have an issue with technology and I don't know what to do, I ask an eight-year-old. Uh, you know, you go to somebody... You go to somebody that knows more than you, and in life, when you get a gut punch, well, it makes sense that we pray, but sometimes we don't. Now, uh, often it's pride. You know, God becomes the last resort instead of our first resort. It's, it's pride. There's this great French philosopher and Christian by the name of Blaise Pascal. And one time he said, our pride cuts us off from the Father. It's like we're petulant little children and we say, I'll do it myself. And I've had daughters and sometimes they'll say, I'll do it myself. And I know they can't, but they don't know they can't. And they try to do it themselves. Sometimes it's fear. We're, we're afraid. We, we say to ourselves, okay, well, I got myself into this. And I'm going to get myself out why would God even want to help me? 
I love the story of the prodigal son. It, it is my favorite part of the Bible for a couple reasons. I've been a prodigal. Probably you have too. I love the story because there's somebody in that story I can identify with. You know the story, there's this boy and he's arrogant and he's cocky and he uh, is disrespectful of his father and he takes his inheritance and he goes and he sold his wild oats and then he becomes destitute and he thinks to himself, I'll go back, there's no other choice, I'm about to die, this is my last resort. I love the story because as he comes home, the father is waiting to welcome him. If you're worried that God is mad at you, he's not mad at you. I, I love that story. We, we worry God is disappointed. He might be disappointed. That doesn't make him mad, and it certainly doesn't make him off-putting. He, he will, you take one step and he will run the rest of the way. I love that story. Sometimes we we don't approach God because we're timid. We think to ourselves, and I've done this, you know, he's got a lot of people to take care of. There's 8 billion people on the planet. The, the population clock just passed 8 billion a few weeks ago. 8 billion people, why would he even have time? How could he even have time for me? And yet, in Hebrews, for millennia, we've loved these verses. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Where do you turn when your world crashes in? You know, I'm not talking about your team loses, although I know that can be stressful. I'm not talking about an ingrown toenail, although those hurt, I know. I'm talking about death and destruction and despair and darkness and danger. I'm talking about when you have the stuffing knocked out of you. What do you do? First Peter says this, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because, and this is the most important part, he cares for you. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, you start by seeking God's wisdom, even if it's your own fault, even if you are complicit in the problems that you have. You start by asking God what to do. Then, secondly, you listen. I love Elisha. Elisha is like uh, many men. He is a fixer. This lady has a problem. Look at what he does. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Uh, that, that was like, how can I help you? Oh, I know. Uh, what do you have in your house? That was like one second in between. He's figuring out he needs the help. And then he says, okay, what do you have? Your servant, listen, listen, listen. This is really important. Has nothing there at all. You know what that tells me? She has apparently exhausted all of her resources. She's trying to pay that back a debt. It sounds to me like she sold her furniture. She sold her stuff. She's hawked everything she can hawk. She sold everything she can sell. I have nothing left except 
one small jar of olive oil. One little bitty, and the way it reads is it's, it's one serving. I have one serving of olive oil. I don't know if you've ever been hungry. I've hardly ever been hungry. I don't eat cheese. I mentioned that last week. I'll go to some of these fancy, fancy little dinners, and they all think, cheese, everybody likes cheese. Well, nobody, nobody, really. <laughs> they serve lasagna. You know what lasagna is? Full of cheese. Uh, it's everywhere. And then people will have the audacity to say, well, just pick it off. Are you kidding me? <laughs> cheese molecules get into everything. They're like a fungus. All right, so, but you know what? I get a burger on the way home. I have never hungry. I just, I just, I'm not. And from the look of it, you aren't either. Uh, so, uh, but this woman, now think about it. Think about it. She's got one serving of olive oil. That's all she's got left. So, now, um, Elisha says, okay, okay, okay. Go around, ask all your neighbors for empty jars. All right, show of hands, literally show of hands. This isn't rhetorical. How many of you would be comfortable going to your neighbors and asking for something? Look around. That's about hmm, 10%. I'd say 10%. That's a different culture. They live closer together. Um, I've got two neighbors. I've got lots of neighbors, but I got you know one on each side. I don't have anybody across the street. And so I was thinking to myself, and I have one behind me. I really like them. Uh, would I go to them and ask for anything? Well, the guy on my right, no. The guy on my left, no. Oh, the guy behind me, no. <laughs> I just wouldn't. I mean, it's just kind of uh, our culture. So he says, all right, this is what you're supposed to do. Go and ask. Now, let's presume something. I think it's fair. If she has nothing in her home, there's a really good chance she's already gone to her neighbors. She's already made an ask. I would suspect she's asked for things, food or money or whatever. She's already asked. And he says, ask for more. And then he says this, don't just ask for a few. I mean, you know, I'll tell you why he said that. I think when we're... Um, when we're down and out, we think we shouldn't ask for too much, like we don't deserve it. And so we typically ask for the minimum. And what he's saying is, don't do that. Don't just ask for the minimum. The implication is here, if they have a little bit you know, in one and a little bit in the other, have them merge so you, they can give you, they can give you the, the vessel. Ask for every empty jar they have. Ask for all of it. And then he says, go inside, shut the door behind you with your sons, pour the oil into all the jars, and each is filled, as each is filled, put it to one side. He's giving her the blueprint. This is how it's going to be. And the blessing is in proportion to the asking. You will be blessed in proportion to how much you collect, how, how many vessels you get. I think it's really important here. Elisha doesn't ask for a cut. 
You know, like, I'd like 10%. You know, uh, this is really great advice. I'm going to get, you know, no, he didn't ask for anything. But he does ask her to take a risk. Take that little bit that you have and begin to pour it into these other vessels which are much bigger. Now, here's the problem in life today. There are lots of voices. God is one voice. There are lots of voices in the world right now. You can get advice from television, from books, from podcasts. You can get advice from people who follow God and people who don't. Christians and non-Christians. Everybody has an opinion. In fact, there's, there's a new thing called Twitter. Lots of opinions on Twitter. It's amazing. Everybody has an opinion. Um, every, there are opinions everywhere. So, how do we know... How do we know it's God's voice? Well, okay, so God's primary means of speaking to us is through his word. If what you hear lines up with his word, it's not his only way. I'll give you a couple other things, but primarily it's through his word. So you hear things like follow your heart, not in the Bible. That's not good advice. Uh, You hear things like uh, when when you die, heaven gains another angel, not in the Bible. That's not good. God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. Uh, Cleanliness is next to godliness, not in the Bible. It should be. Uh, It's not in there. (laughs) So you have to use a filter. What does God say? What does God say in his word? You have to kind of know his word. Now he uses the Holy Spirit and impressions and godly counsel. Sometimes God speaks to me through like movies. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but... uh, All right, so there's this movie called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood about Mr. Rogers. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but uh, it was great. Uh, I watched it between Gladiator and Fight Club, so I want you to know that. Uh, So, just so you know. But it's a movie about Mr. Rogers and and this uh, investigative reporter named Lloyd Fogle. And they develop a friendship... But the thing I got from that movie was Mr. Rogers would drop everything and give you his undivided attention. I mean, he was present with everybody he spoke to. And we are so hurried and busy. And sometimes we don't do that. And I thought, gosh, what a great takeaway that is to be present with everyone we speak to. I mean, that certainly fits Scripture, certainly coincides with what God says. And so the Lord speaks to us through lots of different ways. But the main way is through His Word. But there are other ways. Now, there's a big difference between listening and understanding. Anybody that's married understands this. Tim Keller, who's this pastor in New York City and has written many, many books, he, he says uh, his wife and he will be in an argument and he'll say, okay, okay, I understand you. And she'll say, you don't understand me until I say you understand me. Uh, so uh, there's a difference between listening and understanding, right? And, and so um, we have to not just know what God's Word says, we have to be willing to do it. And like this whole series, even when it doesn't add up, even when it doesn't make great sense. The third thing is understanding should lead to obeying. Finally, we've got to not just know what God wants us to do. We have to do it even when it's difficult. 
There's this famous verse uh, in Deuteronomy. Hero, it's called the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here is the word Shema, but it literally means obey. It can mean hear, it can mean obey. And, and the verse, some, in some translations, it says, Obey, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It, it's not enough to just listen. We know that. We, we intuitively know it. As as parents will say to our kids, you're not listening to me. What does that mean? They're not doing what we ask them to do. We say you're not listening. What we mean is you're not obeying. You're not obeying. You're not listening to me. Miriam says that to me sometimes. Uh, it, it happens. Now, I, I like this woman, this widow, because... I mean, she is desperate. If it had been me, I would have tried to figure out, how do I sell that little bit of oil? Can I make that oil into um, something? Can I make bread out of it? Or is there a way for me to monetize this little bit I have left? I mean, pouring the little bit I have left into other jars... What if it doesn't multiply? That took a lot of faith. See, I like to tell God, hey, this is what I would like to do. Will you bless that? I want to do this. You should bless that. And God is like, well, I don't know. I got other ideas. And sometimes he has other ideas, just other ideas. So we, we ask and we listen and then we trust. She left him and shut the door behind her with her sons and they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. And he replied, There is not one jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. You do what you know to do. Even when it doesn't add up. Um, I think it's interesting. He said, Hey, bring your kids into the room. I want them to see what God does. For those of us who are parents, it's important for us to incorporate our children in with us in ministry. Uh, I'm going to do this, but I want you to help me. Uh, next Sunday, uh, our youth are going to be our greeters. It's the fifth Sunday. We're going to start doing that on fifth Sundays. And so they're going to be our greeters. I wish it had been today because I would have loved to have seen them out with their umbrellas. Our guys did a great job today, didn't they? Wow, those guys. I know. They were awesome. Miss Page cracking the whip on him. I mean, it's like, get out there, losers. Uh, she was awesome. It was great. They were, they, were, they were super today. They were super. And I'll be super next week. But incorporating their kids. So he, uh, he, he said, hey, hey, uh, uh, not just you. I don't want you just to go in there. I want you to see. I want, you to, I want the boys to see. I want them to see it and experience it and feel it. And sometimes... It takes a crisis in your life for you to finally figure out what God wants you to do. Here's what's really interesting to me. Difficulty, we hate it. We hate it. I want life really easy. I, I want it easy. I, I want to sleep till noon, and then I want to get up and eat, you know, <laughs> a Chick-fil-A, uh, and then I want to watch football, and I want to go to bed, and, uh, and, and I want to maintain a good weight and have, get paid. Uh, uh, that, that's what we want. We want it easy. 
We just want it easy. But life is hard, and the difficulty in life shapes who we are. Every difficulty. It's, it's like sandpaper. It, it grinds away the rough edges of our lives. Difficulty can be a blessing. And sometimes you don't know that until you're just down and out. Mother Teresa was a Catholic nun. She worked in Calcutta, India with the, the most destitute, the poorest people in the, in the, in the country, probably in the world. I mean, pe- these people, they were sick and they were poor and there, there are so many of them, and she decided to work among them, and many of them gave their hearts to Christ. And they asked Mother Teresa, why do so many of these untouchable, the untouchable class, why do so many of them come to Jesus? And her quote is brilliant. She said, when Jesus is all you've got, you discover Jesus is all you need. Amen. God's fingerprint is all over this story. And when he says, let's double back just for a second. When he says, go around and ask your neighbor for all your empty jars. Okay, okay, so I've always thought that meant, in my mind, okay, she has this little bitty jar, so she's asking for mason jars. It's kind of what I thought. Go get all the mason jars. The word literally means storage containers. She goes to her neighbors and says, hey, you got any five-gallon buckets I can have? That's what she's asking for. He wasn't going to just bless. He was going to really bless. We, we want to ask for the minimum, and God wants to give us more. I, I'm that way. I've started praying like this. Lord, in my feeble humanity, this is what I think. But if you'd like to give me more, I'll take it. If you want to give me more than this, well, I would be delighted. I would think I would like that very much. I want to show you a clip from that movie I mentioned a second ago, uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, but I need to set it up. Oh, wait a minute. I think I have one more verse. Hold on. Yeah. Oh, she went and told the man of God. She went to Elisha, and she says, uh, uh, he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live with whatever's left. God did more than... More than enough, because he always does. All right, so let me set this clip up for you. In this scene, it's in a restaurant, and Mr. Rogers is sitting on the right hand of this booth. And on the left is this reporter named uh, Lloyd Vogel. Now, uh, to understand what he's talking about here, Vogel uh, is this... um, He's a cynical reporter who did this story on Mr. Rogers, and he finds out Mr. Rogers is a genuine article. And in those conversations they had while he's interviewing, Mr. Rogers sort of delves into uh, Lloyd's life. And he finds out that Lloyd is he's angry and bitter and mean because his father left him when he was young. His mom developed a, a grave illness, and the dad left and the mother dies. And this reporter now is older. He has his own son. And the dad's trying to make his way into his life. And he is 
resistant. In fact, you'd use the word, he hates his father. He just hates him. And Mr. Rogers has a handler, a guy that helps him get away from crowds. His name is Bill. And before this scene, Bill has a conversation with this reporter named Lloyd, and he says, Mr. Rogers gravitates toward people like you. And he uses the, the term broken people. There's going to be some silence in this particular scene, and we're not really comfortable with silence. But I'd like you to engage in the exercise that Mr. Rogers challenges Lloyd Fogel to do. And then I'll come back and wrap up.
is so much better. When I do that exercise, I think my mom, my dad, my wife, my in-laws, positive influences on me. But you know, I've also had mean people in my life. Not in this church, but there are mean people in churches. Most of us have been betrayed, lied to, lied about. Most of us. And even in those times, God is creating us to be the person He's always wanted us to be. There's this great text that says, and we know that in all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the depressing, whether it's financial, personal, spiritual, every challenge we face is an opportunity for us to grow. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and who've been called according to His purpose. This amazing God of ours has an ability to take difficulty and make something beautiful out of it. So the question is, is God enough? Well, God is enough. Maybe the question should say, is God enough for me is he enough for me because he is enough I'm so glad you're here today. On these rare occasions, sometimes there's kind of a holy moment. It's as if the Holy Spirit just comes down. fills the room and as Mr. Rogers would say I'm glad we got to experience that today so glad you were here let's pray Father we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us we're thankful that even in difficulty you are there you're willing, you're able, you're anxious to help us.
I pray that what we've experienced today, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've sung, what we've said, would continue to shape us into the person you've called us to be. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.